Police in central Japan detained three people over a video of a man licking a communal soy sauce bottle at a branch of the popular sushi chain Kurazushi, where food is served on a conveyor belt. <laughs> the prank last month went viral, causing outrage online. It even led to fluctuation in the chain's share price. It's one of a spate of unsanitary attacks, known by some as sushi terrorism, that have caused disgust in the country. Other restaurants have also been targeted by people filming themselves touching sushi as it glides by on the belt and licking disposable chopsticks. One of those detained has reportedly apologised for his actions. Prince Harry and his wife Meghan have confirmed that their children will now be known as Prince and Princess. The couple publicly used their daughter's royal title for the first time to announce her christening. The BBC's Nicholas Witchell has more. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex have stepped back from royal life and Harry has been frank in his criticisms of the royal family. But it would appear that the couple want their children to bear royal rank. And that is their birthright. Under protocols dating back more than a century, the children of the sons of the sovereign are entitled to the rank of prince or princess. So the Sussexes issued a statement today disclosing that their daughter, described as Princess Lilibet Diana, had been christened in California last Friday. It's understood that members of the royal family, it's thought Harry's father and brother, were invited but did not attend. And finally, EU scientists say Antarctic sea ice shrank to an all-time minimum in February, while the European continent experienced its second warmest winter on record. The EU's climate monitoring service Copernicus said the covering of ice around Antarctica contracted to 2.4 to 2.09 million square kilometers, 34% below the average February. Its report said temperatures were higher than usual in East and Northern Europe, with several records broken on New Year's Day. The news from RTHK. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. Money Talk. Good morning. It's 8.05 in Hong Kong on Thursday, March the 9th, and this is Money Talk. I'm Andrew Work, and these are your business headlines. Jerome Powell continues his tour of presenting the Monetary Policy Report, appearing in front of the House Financial Services Committee. Higher interest rates are forecast in a couple of weeks if economic data is strong. Guess what? The data is strong. BlackRock's Rick Ryder is telling people to expect to live with interest rates of 6% or more for an extended period. Germany is moving to ban Huawei from parts of the German 5G rollout, and predictably, China is not happy, with the Berlin embassy rep saying it is they are very puzzled and strongly dissatisfied. Egg shortages in Japan are so severe that restaurants like McDonald's and convenience stores, including 7-Eleven, are pulling egg-related items off the options list. Egg prices have doubled in the wake of a global bird flu epidemic impacting domestic production and imports. Cathay Pacific released results yesterday and saw its stock close up 1.4% on the news after an initial morning dip. It managed this as losses were bigger than the year before, but lower than expected. The 2023 outlook is for the airline to return to profitability. TVB stock has been skyrocketing lately, increasing 21% yesterday on plans to have its stars become internet shills. More on that later. On today's Money Talk, we read the financial tea leaves with master prognosticators, including Enzio von Feil, wealth, man, wealth investment strategist, and Frederick Chu, managing director at Magnum Research. Plus, taking a look at the importance of diversity in business hot on the heels of International Women's Day, Carolyn Wright speaks to Andrea Randall, partner at law firm RPC. 
Uh, checking in on our equatorial rival, we'll have the view from Singapore with Jeff Howie, market strategist at SGX. We want your questions, your emails, and your undying loyalty. You can start with the email, moneytalk at rthk.hk. And if you can say nice things about us or our guests on Facebook, our, hit the page is Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. We've kept our powder dry until now, but now it's time to fire up Money Talk. Taking a closer look at our headlines, Jerome Powell continues his tour of Washington's Capitol building. He presented to Congress and told them that inflation fighting was far from over. Strong economic data continues to confound his efforts to tame inflation. The latest data suggests that the U.S. labor market remains strong. Numbers from the private sector out Wednesday showed that the U.S. companies added 280,000 jobs in February. That's more than economists were forecasting. That came ahead of Friday's official employment report. The BBC's Samir Hussain reports. You'd think very high levels of unemployment would keep everyone happy. Well, it's not working for U.S. equity investors, and definitely not for the head of the central bank. Now, the payroll company, ADP, put out numbers that showed that private employers are still adding jobs, and that at a pretty strong clip. Also, the labor market's so-called JOLTS research, that stands for Job Openings and Labor Turnover, by the way, it showed that for every available worker in the U.S., there are nearly two open jobs. The inflation is also strong, running at 5.4%, far off the target of 2%. Asian stocks, including those in Hong Kong, fell on the news. Members of Congress asked questions about the division of banking and insurance regulation and the regulatory environment for a retail central bank digital currency. The day before, Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren was especially critical of Powell's inflation-fighting interest rates, fearing future job losses. Now, Elizabeth Warren is also known for critiquing financial regulations, and China is planning some of its own. Current banking and insurance watchdogs will be absorbed into a new bureau, a national financial regulatory administration, to oversee all financial sectors except the securities industry according to a new plan released at the National People's Congress on Tuesday. The PBOC will also lose responsibility oversight of financial holding companies and financial consumer protection. Strangely enough, the model this new structure is being compared to is Australia's. Centralization is aiming to ensure that creative financial vehicles don't fall between the cracks between different regulatory bodies. On the energy front, China is adding more renewable energy capacity than almost all other countries in the world combined. It is also adding more coal than any other country. It approved 106 gigawatts of new coal capacity in 2022, four times the amount approved in 2021. That's the equivalent of about 100 new coal-fired power plants. Mr. Xi's target is for the country to reach peak carbon in 2030 and be carbon neutral by 2060. And Cathay is back in the black, sort of. It reported its first annual operating profit since 2019. Revenue was up 12% just shy of analyst expectations of 52.7 billion Hong Kong dollars. The overall situation was a loss as Cathay's holdings in Air China dragged down its overall results, a situation that could repeat itself in 2023, according to Bloomberg analyst Bak Sinsu. Something resembling a return to a pre-COVID normal is expected by the end of 2024. Joanna Liu from aviation analytics firm Sirium has more. Our track utilization flights data shows Cassie has uh, improved its club capacity since last summer, but for the whole year of 2022, the capacity provided was very volatile and accumulated capacity was still 72% down compared to 2019 level. So the accumulated traffic level was also very uh, low compared to 2019. Uh, overall, the, the picture is still cha challenging. 
In other airline news, United Airlines is resuming daily flights to Hong Kong from San Francisco. And British Airways will double its flights to Hong Kong at the end of March, just in time for the sevens. Adidas expects to break a 31-year run of profitability in 2023. It lost money in Q4 2022 and is slashing dividends in the wake of its breakup with Ye, formerly known as Kanye West. Apparently, they have a massive inventory of his Yeezy shoes worth up to 1.2 billion euro. More athletes and fewer anti-Semitic lunatics are part of the refocus plan going forward. Julie Zerber, founder and editor-in-chief of the website The Fashion Lot, says none of Adidas' options look particularly great. They could sell these sneakers. They're within their rights legally to do so. They're the owner of the designs. Adidas management was saying that if they were to do that, there's the potential that they would donate the proceeds to charity. They could also potentially destroy the sneakers, which has some very obvious potential for PR backlash. Um, consumers don't take kindly to the destruction of perfectly wearable, perfectly usable product. And now on to the markets on Money Talk. Money Talk on Radio 3. All right, the Dow closed down almost 0.2%, but the rest of America rose with the S&P up uh, 0.14% higher and the Nasdaq up 0.4%. Strong labor market data fueled expectations that the conditions that were creating the scenario the Fed chair would, said would lead to higher interest rates. The Toronto Stock Exchange uh, rose 0.35% with IT stocks performing strongly. The Stock 600 held up steady, up 0.1%, beat only slightly by the FTSE. The DAX and Italian FTSE rose about half a percent, while the French CAC slipped 0.2%. Eurostat data released showed the EU economy as a whole neither grew nor shrank in last quarter 2022. In Asia, the Nikkei 225 climbed 0.48%. The Kospi took a hit, dropping 1.3%. The Hang Seng Index took a beating, dropping 2.35%, even though some stars like Cathay and TVB were way up. Country Garden Services and Country Garden Soul Holdings lost 7 and 5% respectively. Big losers were the mainland plays in sectors as varied as pharmaceutical, online retail, banking, and processed glass manufacturing. But TVB... Trading volumes are up 68 times over a three-month average, and the stock price almost doubled as its TV stars started hawking products on Alibaba's Taobao platform. The share price has climbed more than 200% this month alone. Shaw Brothers and Emperor also saw share prices almost double. The Shanghai and Shenzhen bourses were essentially flat, closing down just a wee bit. Oil dropped 1.4% after a midday rise, while natural gas shed an unlucky 4.4%. Gold only lost 0.1% after a midday rise. Silver fell half a percent and palladium dropped 1.1%. Bucking that trend, platinum was up 0.4% and copper had a good day, up 1.4%. The U.S. 10-year Treasury bond yield joined its global peers in rising yesterday. The yield on a U.S. Uh, two-year Treasury note ticked up over 5%. Currencies, the euro mostly held even against the U.S. dollar, as did the pound and the Swiss franc, all with a less than a t- almost less than a tenth of a percentage movement. The loonie continues to fall as the Bank of Canada announced it would not be raising interest rates, staking out a different direction from the U.S. Fed. Many analysts see a floor at a buck forty to the greenback. The U.S. dollar is dropping against the Chinese yuan and the Singapore dollar, but rising against the Aussie dollar, and it picked up 0.2% against the Japanese yen. Good for Hong Kong tourists going to Japan if you can afford the flight to get there. 
In crypto world, uh, Money Talk told you to watch Silvergate Capital. And sure enough, it announced it would wind down operations and liquidate its capital. Stock dropping 36%. All major cryptos were down on the news yesterday except Ripple. The XRP coin is up 3.2% in an expectation of victory over the SEC in its current legal battle with them. Bitcoin dropped below $22,000 US, almost down almost 2% from yesterday. Looking at the markets, we see the Australian Stock Exchange has opened up just a bit. And the Hang Seng Futures Index is predicting a better day with a 0.3% increase. All right. Uh, it was quite a big day for news yesterday and overnight, and we're glad that we've got a great guest to walk us through it, uh, starting with Enzio von File, wealth investment strategist and Money Talk stalwart. Good morning, Enzio. Good morning to you. Hey, we've also got Frederick Chu, managing director at Magnum Research. Good morning, Frederick. Hi. Good morning, gentlemen. All right. Uh, let's talk about the Federal Reserve chairman says, if then, if the economic data continues to be strong, then I am going to be raising rates. Uh, Enzio... Any surprises for you? No, because they continue on this, I think, somewhat erroneous track, thinking that its inflation is solely because too much money is chasing too few goods. Um, listeners know that I felt for a good year and a half that the Fed funds would reach 6% precisely because they're making this policy mistake of, of adamantly refusing to look at the supply side of the equation, the war in Ukraine driving up food prices, the weather driving food prices, bird flu driving up egg prices, changed work habits, meaning that people simply don't want jobs. Um, and I think that these things, these supply constraints cannot be cured by tighter money. So he's going to continue with his board doggedly pursuing too much money, chasing too few goods, very much um, to his own detriment. Uh, Frederick Chu, the, the end of the world as we know it, do you feel fine? What, what do you think? <laughs> I, it's obviously not a good thing for uh, what, what the equity investors are looking at, but I think uh, the market has been digesting on that basis uh, for the past, you know, at least uh, several weeks. I mean, um, uh, the March uh, is going to get another 50 basis point, uh, you know, and U.S., it's probably whether you say it's prolonging the um, potential recession to come or is really on the strong track. I'm, I'm sure that, you know, you, you have a very good just, uh, uh, you know, everyone will have a, a very good judgment on that. I mean, but it, it seems like some major economies are starting to diverge from the Fed. Korea, I'm thinking Korea, Canada. Uh, I mean, NZO, are we, are we going to see more of this kind of divergence between uh, different, different national, different major economies? Sure, because I think that there's the economic time, the economic clock will be changing. I think with the U.S., you will find an increasing excess demand for money because they've been they've been tightening that balance sheet for some weeks now. It's only kind of new that they've been doing that. Whilst in places like China, they of course want an excess supply of money to crank up the economy. Mm. Uh, speaking of money in China, uh, big news in terms of restructuring the regulatory environment in China. Uh, Frederick, what's what's your take on these on these announcements of all these different changes that are coming down the pike? It's been coming, uh, you know, uh, prior to the two sessions. I mean, the um, the uh, president she has been, you know, explicitly, um, you know, uh, putting concerns over how the uh, financial market obviously it, it's it's uh, it, it's working uh, at the moment and. 
most importantly, uh, the non-financial companies are tapping into the financial industry without being, you know, a proper oversight by the uh, market uh, regulators. I think that's that's the biggest thing that that concerns him or concerns the entire market. If you look at, um, you know, in in China, many many uh, you know, not uh, uh, non-financial like conglomerates can can be can be performing, com- uh, you know, f- uh, yeah, financial works directly or indirectly in terms of you know investments or distributions and so on and so forth. So I think, um, you know, if you want to reform the entire CSRC, it's probably, you know, difficult to rebuild something over existing bureaucracy. But if you try to extract some of the core functions out from it and become a more, you know, um, target targeting, uh, you know, uh, the regulator, uh, regulatory function, then, then I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a good thing to the, uh, to, uh, you know, the, the, some of the market aspects. Mm-hmm. Enzio? Well, I think that I, I agree with Frederick. I just think that with China's capital market now being the second largest in the world, 80 trillion worth of stocks, A shares, and about um, 126 trillion worth of bonds, I think that they do need to up their ante on the regulatory side of things. We've, of course, had various crises going on in China that we all know about with the, with these local government financing vehicles, with the financial crisis, Baoshang Bank and Hangfeng Bank. So I think that they do need, and that they're correctly doing this, to, to consolidate this effort into one set of hands. We, you know, we had Peter uh, Churchhouse on the show on Tuesday, and he thought the uh, local government financing vehicles were a big he, I think he called them, what do you call them, a, a hidden bomb? Some, something along those lines. He basically said that they were a disaster waiting to happen, and, and nobody was really sure what the scope of that would be. Is, there, is, that, is this new, is, is in terms of how they fit into the new regulatory regime, uh, is this an indication that China recognizes that and they're, they're, they're kind of girding their loins to deal with it? I think so. I think that because they know that, I mean, according to The Economist of a, of a week ago, the suggested figure of corporate bonds outstanding is 50 trillion won. It's not the reported um, 13.6 trillion. So because there's a lot of funny stuff going on with these local government financing vehicles. So I agree with my friend Peter that it's a tipping, it's a ticking time bomb. But I would also add that the Chinese authorities are aware of this and now they're attacking the issue, which is great. Yeah. Um, are, are they concerned that, you know, as China moves to close the gaps in the regulatory environment to kind of catch creative new ventures, I think like like when, when uh, mm. Ant Financial went to have their IPO and then all of a sudden the, the regulators looked at it and said, we don't actually understand what these guys are doing or, or how much money is mm. floating around in their system. Um, but I mean, if, if they're going to close all the gaps, uh, is this going to be a drag on creativity and innovation in the in the financial sector? Needn't be. I, I'm not sure that they're going to. I'm, I'm not versed in, in the the details, but I'm not thinking that they're going to close all the gaps. I think they just want to make sure that this thing is done sort of more holistically and in in gets gets some gestalt, some contours around it, as opposed to just being a little bit of a free for all. Yeah. And Frederick, what do you, what do you think? How, what's your outlook for the financial sector under this new regime? Yeah, I, I think so, too. You, you, you're not going to close all the gaps, to be honest. I think uh, what the uh, government is really focusing on is, you know, some of the tech companies being too much uh, expanding into uh, some fields that's you know, non-related to their core business. Or it's, it's okay for you to tap into uh, the financial industry, but you just have to do it 
uh, in a way that the government has an oversight on, if you know what I mean. So um, if you if if there are too much leeways that you can you can um, you can uh, uh, um, you know go through into, I, I think the government doesn't like it. Were either of you surprised at the uh, suggestion that the PVOC was going to have a reduced role? It's cutting staff. It's getting rid of some of the county level outposts. I mean, uh, you know, the, the almighty PBOC is uh, really seems to have taken a bit of a a bit of a hit in this one in terms of prestige and and uh, realms of control. Uh, was that a surprise for either of you? Yeah, I, I think the you know reducing the bureaucracy it, it's a good it's a good sign what what we probably need to put uh you know most attention to is the creation of the new uh function out from CSRC uh for the uh, for the oversight of the uh, financial events uh because this could be two 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 sort of things one it's you know the, the reason why why they extract out from the CSRC is they somehow believe that if you if you're finding financial experts to regulate the financial markets that would cause a lot of conflict of interest now that true or not it's it's just their mentality so you know the one thing that could affect is the power of CSRC and and the scope and also the scope of the uh, newly created entity okay and you yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it's it's again. I, I think that they're just it's it's a bit of a catch up game. I think that they they recognize issues going on in China and they want to tighten up a little bit. Of course, there's always going to be overshoot on both sides, either undershoot or overshoot. Now we're moving into overshoot time. In other words, they'll probably be tightening up a little bit too much. But that happens anywhere. There's nothing Chinese about that one. Okay. So, I mean, I mean, we're going to keep an eye on that because it seems like uh, after they kind of set the direction over the weekend, the, the pronouncements about what is actually happening is, is those, those pronouncements are coming fast and furious. Uh, switching gears a little bit, uh, we got some European data in and eh. <laughs> I mean, like, no. they kinda, it's very rare. You see them hit zero, like no, oh, no growth, no, <laughs> no growth. Who reads Europe, yeah. Yeah, a lot oh. of reception technically. Denzio? Well, technically, no, but I mean, having lived there for so long, it has Europe has great cultural advantages, but it just is not the, the hot place where you're going to be doing business because, frankly, the taxes are so high, why even work? It just doesn't make any sense. And then it gets, it gets spent out in social welfare. So there's very little incentive to really work in Europe, and that makes it, in my mind, the world's most dangerous geopolitical place around, worse than Taiwan, worse than the Ukraine, because nobody's talking about it. Yeah, Frederick, do you, do you see any bright spots there? Yeah, I, I think that Europe uh, you know, is, is having a much bigger headwind uh, due to the uh, Ukraine uh, situation. So it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to persist for some time, to be honest. And I mean, I mean, even with kind of anemic growth, uh, it looks like the European Central Bank is still insisting that they are going to uh, crank, crank up the interest rates American style. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what, what's your take on what that means either for, for the economy or for, say, bond markets there? I think it's a dilemma for the uh, ECB whether to follow the U.S. way or not. Uh, obviously, they choose the um, to choose to follow the uh, the uh, the uh, you know the the Fed cycle, uh, which is going to you know put even more headwinds towards the economy and uh, and the people's life. It's again, it's 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 fighting the it's fighting yesterday's war. There's not just too much money chasing too few goods. There's some very strong structural reasons. I'm also amazed that they're not using the EU's considerable grain reserves to battle that problem. 
but then I guess that wouldn't be in their interest. So I'm afraid that it's it's just the mess just continues in Europe, and they don't. And and the, the other thing is that they have to raise rates because otherwise the Europe the euro will probably fall quite strongly, and that then would heat up imported inflation. Mm. All right, guys, uh, we got we got just about a minute and a half left. Um, I do want to get because they're big local stories. Uh, and Enzi, I know you're the big you're the big picture guy, so I'm not going to put you on the spot for this Thank one. You. But, but Frederick, Frederick, you're going to be on the hot seat. Uh, take your Good. pick, Cathay or TVB. Talk about our local Canto pop stars. What what is going on with this stock? I, I, I would love to go again uh, on, on on the TVB because the stock coat is uh, having the same birthday as mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that it's obviously very spectacular. I think the story behind is the deal with Taobao, which has to do with, you know, the consumer behavior in China um, and the way that the product are being sold successfully through these, uh, you know, uh, uh, online KOLs. Uh, who has millions of followers? Now, the the recently the Chinese have been cracked. The Chinese authority has been uh, limiting what these uh, KOL can be rewarded. So I think changing to a more, you know, traditional and more legitimate platform as as a TV. Uh, you know, a platform with, you know, the, the, the TV stars being well recognized also in the mainland market. I think that's a, that's a good gimmick. Um, and that obviously we have, uh, you know, uh, some of the, you know, uh, uh, chain the benefit to, to TVB on their own online shops and also, you know, on the uh, TV series to be played in, in the, in the mainlands uh, going forward, et cetera. That's a heck of a gimmick when your share price goes up 200% Absolutely. in six trading days. And I mean, I guess there was the promise that they were going to do this and that bumped the share price. And now that they have actually launched it, um, it it's it's kind of beyond gimmick. I mean, they're actually selling stuff. Yeah. Right? There's a lot of money move changing hands. Yeah, they did one show uh, before the Women's Day and, you know, there, there are like three millions uh, uh, total total views and uh, 20-something million of, uh, uh, you know, uh, sales uh, through that program. It is not massive, to be honest, with the, with the online market in, in China, but it's a pretty, you know, decent start, I would say. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for coming in today and shedding some light on the darkness. That's Enzio von File, Wealth Investment Strategist, and Frederick Chu, Managing Director at Magnum Research, who were uh, telling us what's what in the markets. Still to come, uh, we've got our segment coming up, your money. Carolyn Wright will speak to Andia, Andrea Randall, who's a partner at the law firm RPC, on the benefits and challenges of having a diverse workforce. We're also going to have the view from Singapore. Jeff Howie, who's a market strategist at SGX, the Singapore Stock Exchange. And he will close out today's show with a look at what's going on with our regional rival. Uh, having a look at the markets right now, uh, we've got some good and we've got some not so good. The Australian ASX 200, uh, kind of wavering between holding steady and trending downwards. The Kospi is up. The Nikkei 225 is also trending up, currently up uh, 248 points or 0.87%. So that's a strong start to the day. Having a the Hang Seng Index is uh, also trending to look up a little bit. And looking at the weather, mainly fine and dry, apart from low visibility in some areas, max temperature of 27 degrees. Uh, looking at where we are now, the current temperature is 21 degrees Celsius and 77% humidity. And now the news with Vicki Wong. 
A U.S. Justice Department investigation has concluded that the police department in Louisville and Kentucky has routine, routinely discriminated against black people. The probe was launched following the death of Breonna Taylor, a black woman shot dead by police during a raid on her home. The findings were announced by the U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland. LMPD uses excessive force, including unjustified neck restraints and the unreasonable use of police dogs and tasers, conducts searches based on invalid warrants, unlawfully executes warrants without knocking and announcing, unlawfully stops, searches, detains, and arrests people, unlawfully discriminates against black people in enforcement activities, the EU's foreign policy chief, Josep Borrell, says he suggested Ukraine's European allies spend more than a billion US dollars for the joint procurement of ammunition for Ukraine and to refill their own stockpiles. He was speaking after a meeting of European defence ministers. There is a clear message. For Ukraine to win the peace, it needs to win the war. And that's why we had to continue supporting Ukraine. To win the peace, Ukraine needs to win the war. And the Ukrainian armed forces need our continuing support, in particular, and this was the core discussion today, on artillery ammunition. Kyiv has warned that it's running low on ammunition. Japanese police have made the first arrests over a spate of incidents showing people carrying out unhygienic pranks on restaurants. The social media posts have sparked concern among potential customers in a country famed for its cleanliness. The BBC's Will Leonardo reports. Police in central Japan detained three people over a video of a man licking a communal soy sauce bottle at a branch of the popular sushi chain Kudazushi, where food is served on a conveyor belt. The prank last month went viral, causing outrage online. It even led to fluctuation in the chain's share price. It's one of a spate of unsanitary attacks, known by some as sushi terrorism, that have caused disgust in the country. A Japanese scientist says he's created eggs from the cells of male mice. The development could have implications for human fertility treatment. The BBC's Palab Ghosh reports. The technique involves first transforming the skin into a stem cell, which can then turn into other types of cells. Because they're male, they have X and Y chromosomes. So Professor Hayashi's team deleted the Y chromosome, duplicated the X and stuck the two Xs together. This adjustment allows a stem cell to be programmed to become an egg. He said that the work was at a very early stage, but Professor Hayashi told BBC News if it could be proved to be safe for humans, he'd like to see it available as a fertility treatment for both male and female and same-sex couples. Prince Harry and his wife Meghan have confirmed that their children will now be known as Prince and Princess. The couple publicly used their daughter's royal title for the first time to announce her christening. The BBC's Nicholas Witchell has more. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex have stepped back from royal life and Harry has been frank in his criticisms of the royal family. But it would appear that the couple want their children to bear royal rank. And that is their birthright. Under protocols dating back more than a century, the children of the sons of the sovereign are entitled to the rank of prince or princess. So the Sussexes issued a statement today disclosing that their daughter, described as Princess Lilibet Diana, had been christened in California last Friday. It's understood that members of the royal family, it's thought Harry's father and brother, were invited but did not attend. 
A 20-year botanical study of Britain shows that plants native to the country have suffered a steep decline since the 1950s, whereas introduced species are now in a majority in the wild. The Plant Atlas 2020 says changes in land use are the main cause. The BBC's Georgina Rannard reports. This so-called plant atlas, made by the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland, is the most complete picture of plant life ever recorded in the UK. What it shows is a catastrophic decline in flora. The scientists involved say parts of the landscape have changed so much that someone growing up 70 years ago would struggle to recognise them today. Invasive species are spreading after being planted in gardens and escaping into the wild, threatening native plants. Intensive farming and climate change are reducing the range of many of the nation's well-known plants like heather. The news from RTHK. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. Welcome back to Money Talk on RTHK3. I'm Andrew Work, and we have our famous Your Money feature coming up with Carolyn Wright. And then, a view from Singapore with Jeff Howey, market strategist at the Singapore Stock Exchange. But first, in the news, Cathay Pacific has plunged further into the red. It's posted a loss of more than $6.5 billion in 2022, up from $5.5 billion the year before. But the markets like the 2023 outlook. Maggie Ho reports. Hong Kong's flag carrier has now posed three straight years of losses with the pandemic disrupting air travel. Cathay Pacific posed the full-year loss of more than $6.5 billion for 2022. It attributed that to losses incurred by its associate companies, including Air China and Air China Cargo. This will be the third consecutive year that shareholders won't receive a dividend. Cathay says although cargo revenue decreased by over 16% last year, passenger revenue tripled to more than $13 billion. And thanks to the gradual easing of COVID restrictions, it carried a total of 2.8 million passengers in 2022, nearly four times out of the year before. Cathay's CEO Ronald Lam said it's very encouraging to see light at the end of the tunnel in the second half of 2022, adding that the positive momentum has continued in into 2023. On the premium travel and low-cost travel side, uh, we're still uh, pretty optimistic about the outlook in terms of travel demand uh, from Hong Kong, from the Greater Bay Area, as well as people transiting via Hong Kong. So, so far this year, we have seen very strong demand on our flights. Uh, whether this will continue into the later half of this year is yet to be seen, but judging on the booking trends, for the first half of the year, uh, we are very positive about the outlook. Chairman Patrick Healy says the group's two airlines, Cathay Pacific and HK Express, will be able to operate at about 70% of their pre-pandemic flight capacity by the end of this year. He added that it's hoped the two carriers can reach full levels in 2024. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Hey, this is Money Talk. I'm Andrew Work. And now, in Your Money Today, Carolyn Wright takes a look at the potential financial benefits of having a diverse workforce. Good morning, Carolyn. 
Good morning. In the wake of it being International Women's Day this week, today we are going to take a look at the importance of diversity in the workplace for the success of a company and its workforce. I'm joined this morning by Andrea Randall, a partner at RPC. Let's kick off with the key question here. Why is it so very important and more than ever now to implement more rounded diversity and inclusion policies in workplaces? So you're absolutely right. Workplace diversity is becoming increasingly important and it's also increasingly acknowledged by businesses as being important. Now, international firms have really been leading the charge on this issue, many of which have or are going to be putting in DNI policies. And the reason for this, and I think the research actually is quite clear, diverse teams can be more sustainable in the long run and actually more profitable. When you have a diverse workforce, what you harvest is diversity of thought, opinions, experiences, and that leads to businesses making better decisions, better innovation, because you have more views on the table. Now, we say diversity uh, and inclusivity because just having a diverse policy on its own won't work. You've got to promote a culture of inclusion in the workplace. So, for instance, if you hire a diverse set of minds, but you don't encourage them or indeed give them an opportunity to speak, then your policy won't materialize and you won't reap the benefits. We'll only really sustain a diverse workforce and harness the benefits of that if we actively and proactively encourage it in the workplace. Otherwise, you you really risk losing people. Um, And that's both a financial risk. You have workers leaving the company because either they take the view that the company doesn't care about them or care about what they do, think, or bring to the table, um, and also actually a legal risk. So, for instance, if you discriminate against an employee on the basis that they're a woman, then your company could risk a sex discrimination case. So... The driver for these changes, whilst they're all generally um, and predominantly international law firms, there's no reason why smaller and more local firms can't implement DNI policies in the workplace and equally uh, enjoy the benefits of having a more balanced workforce. So what sort of strategies would you say employers should be implementing to improve things? Seemingly some places are getting it right and, and some places need to work on it a bit more. So what, what are the good strategies to adopt? So I think, first of all, it's important to consider what your business is and what you're trying to achieve. But speaking very, very generally, employers put in place a number of different types of plans. So, for instance, when they're hiring, when they're looking at making senior level appointments, what they might want to do is have a balanced candidate list first so that they have a balance of genders to choose who they might want to make the offer to. Companies are also looking at putting together remuneration statistics, comparing the genders and asking themselves, is there an imbalance? And if so, why is one gender being paid more than the other? Speaking of my firm, Um, we put together mentoring policies and we ask ourselves how best we can, what we can do to encourage more junior staff to hit their potential and having open and honest conversations about what helps or hinders them in the workplace, especially when we're discussing things like performance and career development. 
One of the other important policy that we look at is programs to support parents to successfully transition back into the workplace, particularly after a period of leave. And that might be with mat leave. Um, and that might also include putting to in more flexible and agile working policies. So that's just a couple of examples, I suppose, to get going. But the main takeaway, I think, is really this. Talk to your people. Understand what it is they want and need. And those wants and needs might be different to your own, but have an open mind about it. Um, because as we said earlier, DNI is really here. And if you're not prepared to run with it, you might risk losing employees and clients. And few businesses can sustain and thrive in those circumstances. Now, this is a thing you've, you've kind of alluded to a couple of times already about having a more diverse workforce means more people coming to the table with greater ideas and and, and more broad range of ideas. Now, that could be just something that helps the, the staff morale, or it could be something that actually boosts the business for the company itself. So, so what are the benefits here? Are there financial benefits as well as, say, uh, work satisfaction? Yeah, absolutely. I think there can be real profit that can be derived by boosting DNI in the workplace. Now, certainly, we're seeing more and more that our international clients are now demanding it. And from their perspective, either as a client or a customer, they'll ask, how can an organization best understand and serve our needs if they don't reflect us? Because customers come in all shapes and sizes and, of course, different genders. So to give you an example, let's say that decision makers on a board are all men. And what they do for a living is they sell women's fashion or let's say shoes. A valid question might be, well, how do these guys understand the comfort or discomfort I wear when I'm wearing a pair of high heels? Have they tried it out? Does it look good? Do they know what a woman wants? Now, the answer to all of those questions might well be yes, but when a customer is looking at a team and managers in particular aesthetically, if the person who's selling you shoes is a man, the customer is much more likely to ask these questions and if your competitor um, are more diverse group, their makeup is much more diverse. You might, in fact, decide, actually, you could just go to buy from them first because you don't need to ask the question. And that means that the team that are um, perhaps gender imbalanced in one degree or another, um, you lose the opportunity of showcasing your products. For instance, as a law firm, we're often asked um, a slightly different question, which is, well, what's your gender makeup? Because we're going to run a case and I need you to defend me or run a case and advance a case um, in relation to sexual discrimination. Often we're asked, is a woman going to run the case? Is it going to be a female lawyer who's going to lead the discussion? Because clients want someone who understands and empathizes with them. And don't forget, clients have a choice. They can choose which lawyer they want to instruct and who they do business with. So in my view, it's no longer a tick box exercise. Um, speaking more broadly, um, certain countries and industries, now they have annual reporting in place whereby companies are being asked about their own demographics. What's the ratio between men and women in the decision-making role? And if there is an imbalance, companies are being asked, what are you going to do about it? So it seems to me that it is profit. It can be profit-driven and it can lead to more sustainable profit. But it's a question that our clients and customers are now asking. And it's only they're only asking it in 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 one way. 
Now, obviously, we've talked an awful lot here about gender uh, because of the fact that it's International Women's Day this week. But should we be considering more aspects of the broadening of diversity and inclusion? Absolutely. I think all the points that I make in respect of gender imbalance is the same with respect with people of different backgrounds, people who um, may have a slightly different experience and slightly different views. But all of this, again, this if we are able to harvest all of this, then it seeds to us making better decisions because we have more range of options, views and thoughts on the table. It's important not only to look at it from a gender perspective, but also to look at it from uh, perhaps a racial perspective and a different background. So I think you're right. It's not just about gender, but it's about a diverse workforce as a whole. I wonder if this is something that should be driven by companies rather than any legal requirement to have a diverse workforce. I think that's right. I think companies need to be the main driver for it because our legislation um, is to do with preventing discrimination rather than encouraging positive e inclusivity. So we do see that international firms in particular are driving a lot of these changes. Andrea, how would you like to wrap up your thoughts on diversity and inclusion in the workplace? I think it's important that we treat people equally, but we also have to acknowledge the historical barriers that have been in place to prevent women and people of other marginalised communities from advancing their careers and their lives. It seems to me that it's a wide discussion that can be had and perhaps not just on International Women's Day, but it should be something that's in the forefront of businesses. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining me. That's Andrea Randall, partner at RPC, talking on the importance of diversity and inclusion in the workplace. Here at Money Talk, we are going to get the view from the Merlion State, Singapore. Uh, we welcome to the show Jeff Howie, market strategist at the Singapore Stock Exchange, SGX. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Andrew. Hey, so, uh, okay, time for Hong Kong to take some shots at our equatorial rival. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll be gentle today. Hey, so, um, what's the, okay, so first of all, let's get the overview. Where is the Singaporean economy headed? Are you, are you watching what's happening in the United States? Uh, or, you know, are domestic issues more at play? What, what, what is on your, on your radar? Yeah, I guess a mixture of both. Uh, I guess the consumer-related services segments of the economy, which include tourism, they are expected to remain firm. But uh, I guess, yeah, even the, the most resilient segments that have taken our economy into this year is, uh, is real t retail trade, F&B services, and uh, real estate construction. But altogether, Andrew, they, yeah. they comprise less than 10% of our GDP, mm. as much as 60%. It comes from manufacturing, wholesale trade, finance, insurance, information and communications and so forth. And just as those key segments were really positively impacted by that big global rebound we saw back in 2021, mm. they would also be expected to be impacted by this global growth moderation where we're probably priced into the market this year. So the, 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 the thing is that we're watching uh, really closely is if that weakness in the trade-related clusters or modern services and so forth do potentially spill into the domestic centres, uh, sectors, I should say. You've got, um, 
you know, this could impact private consumption and, and, and investment activity. So, so that's, that's what we've got to watch pretty closely. Okay. So, I mean, I mean the view from Hong Kong, you're, you're telling us that, yeah, tourism, you say, is firm. I mean, the, the yep. perspective from Hong Kong is it must be – you guys are killing it because, I mean, hotel rates are up. Everything – everybody seems to be going down there. Um, but mm. you're saying that that's not really such a big part of the economy. Well, uh, the yeah, part, yeah. yeah. The parts you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I mean, that's exactly right. And that's why, uh, you know, given our monetary policy here uh, is uh, is really uh, to do with the exchange rate, We're our nominal effective exchange rate. So uh, our, our trade-centred uh, economy has this exposure to global inflation. And, mm-hmm. and for that reason, uh, you've had the MAS basically increase the slope to our exchange rate band three times and also make three upward centres uh, three times in this, in this uh, I guess, this tightening process which began in October 2021. So when you have this um, and also the uh, developments in inflation globally, particularly in the US, we've seen expectations increase that we will have further tightening in, uh, in April when, when it comes to, uh, to the actual... To the actual, you know, the currency band. So, uh, yeah, it's 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 a very cautious outlook. Hmm. Okay, so I mean, you look at the places like uh, Canada, the U.S., European Central Bank. They look at their domestic economy and decide what they're going to do with interest rates. Hong Kong, of course, open economy, but pegged to the U.S. dollar. So, you know, little to no control there. Um, but the MAS, I mean, uh, I guess it sounds like they're looking at maybe a little bit domestic, but mostly the international situation to decide yeah. where they're taking interest rates. Yeah, totally, and that's why the markets are, are, are moving around so much. Like, if you take the U.S. economy, for instance, you've got 70% of that GDP driven by private consumption. So that translates to 17% of global GDP, and hence that uh, strength of the U.S. economy and the impact that is having on the on the outlook for interest rates in the U.S., uh, particularly, you know, even over the last two sessions, it does have an impact here. Uh, if you look at our three most traded stocks here in Singapore, mm-hmm. they, uh, they, they generate more than two-thirds of their income from net interest income, which is you know, basically pivoted to net interest margins. So and, and what are those, the stocks? Uh, that's DBS, OCBC, and UOB, oh, right, the, okay. the, the three banks, yeah. Okay, and, and so, I mean, the U.S., and where they move interest rates is a big part of the story for their global impact. Um, how does what's happening in China now impact on Singapore? It also impacts a, a, a lot because it, it means we all share these. I mean, the, the challenges of the last couple of years mean we all share these familiar themes of you know, uh, glowing, you know, the slowing demand, the higher operational costs, and the supply chain challenges and so forth. So, because we are so trade centered, particularly in our manufacturing segment, uh, this uh, outlook for China and the China recovery is obviously seen as a positive. If you, if you look at it, not just from a Singapore perspective, but look across the region, Singapore, Taiwan and South Korea, monthly exports have all been in contraction since October 2022. Mm. And the uh, outlook for the manufacturing sector is so fluid as well with these global headwinds. Um, And you've got our manufacturing sector still expected to contract this year. So we we, we slowed down considerably to 2.5% growth last year. Uh, from 13% growth in 2021. And much of the uh, decline that we've also seen in our exports has, of course, come from declines of uh, exports to China, which I think were down 40% in the last month and down 30% for the three months prior and down 20% 
uh, month, uh, year on year, all the way going back into July. Hmm. Okay, so that's that's a big impact. Um, I mean, yep. your exports to China are one thing. Uh, I know one thing that Singapore imports uh, a lot from China is uh, expat workers at kind of all levels of the economy. Uh, there's an interesting report. The Singaporean government actually quite introspective looking at, you know, what mistakes were made during the COVID uh, mm. pandemic, which, which I thought was quite interesting because, I mean, I don't think we see a lot of similar reports up here yeah. where, the, where, the, where the government is taking a critical look at its own activities and producing a, a fairly honest assessment of it. Uh, I mean, a lot of the things that they addressed in that report kind of feel like old news, unless there's another pandemic, which, you know, hopefully not. But but a, a, one of the big uh, conclusions was about how they treated expats. And that's, of course, of huge interest to people in Hong Kong, because so many of us uh, left and went to Singapore. What what is yeah. the what is the government's take on that? And how is that going to influence how they treat expats in the future? Well, I, think, I mean, obviously, I think I think we get treated very well. I moved here from, uh, from Hong Kong uh, 14 years ago, and uh, and I, I'm, I'm, I, I, I have read that a lot of uh, expats had moved uh, from Singapore to Hong Kong, but I, I had two working stints in Hong Kong, and I also had my high school years in Hong Kong, and uh, I was surprised, actually, not many of my mates did actually come down. A couple have come down for a quick visit, yeah. but, uh, yeah, I'm just surprised that it's, yeah, it wasn't as prolific as, as it sounds. But I think uh, I think all, all governments would be going back and, and looking over the last three years and seeing what responses uh, could have been tightened up or, or, or possibly uh, adjusted for, for an upcoming pandemic. But we got to remember, we were very lucky in the world as well, because you think that uh, that, pa- that pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, the 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 the, the, the strains and the, and the variants, they became more transmissible, but they also became less severe. Now, had they mm. had the severity actually uh, oscillated around, we would have been in a lot more trouble. So, um, you know, I, I think, yeah, good idea to be introspective, but at the same time, um, you know, I think it's easy to be introspective when you look at the, the uh, variants, and as I said, they didn't actually get more severe. Had they been more severe, then, of course, everything, uh, you know, we probably wouldn't have been doing enough to contain. So, uh, right. yeah. Well, yeah. I, I guess uh, the, the, yeah. report, the report specifically, you know, said that they could have, they, they, had, they didn't let expats come back into Singapore for a while, and it said they could have let them back in sooner as, as restrictions imposed on their return incurred reputational costs and lost goodwill. But I, I guess that was overwhelmed by a new flood of people that wanted to go there anyway. <laughs> this is other parts yeah. of the region were less attractive to live in. Yeah, there's a chap across the road lives diagonal to me, and he he got caught uh, in China, wasn't able to come back for quite a quite a few months, uh, but he has made up for it <laughs> since with uh, yeah with the with the parting in his front yard. Gotcha. So I've I've got the man from the uh, Singapore Stock Exchange on. Uh, you got you got to give me some outlook on the Singapore Stock Exchange. What what are the strong sectors to look for uh, for the for the middle to near you know kind of for the near to mid term. Um, maybe REITs. I mean, you know, Singapore, the SGX, the king of REITs in Asia. What what are going to be the hot spots? You've got about a minute. Yeah, okay. So in a minute, we've got a lot of sector switching so far this year, and we've seen this globally. So globally, you've got consumer cyclicals and the technical technology sectors are really uh, attracting much of the net fund uh, flows across the world. What sector uh, moves and, and what sector flows and so forth we can see in the future really don't just depend on the uh, economic events and the outlook, uh, which is of course highly fluid, but also what big funds and investors are doing already in their portfolio. For instance, if they are already underweight a sector, such as the REITs that we've seen uh, last year, 
then they uh, they may be uh, le- they may be uh, easier to adjust if you have positive developments. But very much uh, really depends and hinges on the outlook for interest rates really really across the curve. And it's the the impact that the interest rates have on the actual sector uh, has this delta that comes with it. If you think of it in a way that technology has a a better outlook for this year because the the uh, supply chain costs have all been uh, reduced supposedly globally uh, and the energy inflation has come back and at the same time you've got uh, a, uh, a recovery particularly in asia global demand or asia demand then you've got uh, you've got a much broader outlook for tech particularly if the world and most of the investors were underweight that sector going into this year. All right, Jeff, you're a Hong, uh, Kong, you're a Hong Kong boy. I like you. So I'm going to give you another 20 seconds to tell us what makes the SGX the place to list. What makes the SGX a place 20 to seconds. list is, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia really matters. Uh, we, we've got this incredible trade block and uh, integration accelerating, particularly with the amount of money waiting at the door to invest in, in Southeast Asia. The, uh, the segments of the economy are, of course, uh, electronic vehicles, it's digitalization, and it's electronics. They are three key segments that are attracting much of the uh, flows into this region. We have incredible uh, consumer bandwidth in, in terms of the segment. So if you are, a, obviously, if you are a uh, global, global, global company looking to access Southeast Asia growth, as well as this incredible digitalization trend we're seeing across the curve, then, then uh, we can provide a springboard. Yep. All right. Thank you very much. That's uh, Jeff Howie, market strategist at SGX. And as we close out Money Talk today, quick look at the markets around the region. The Nikkei is on an upwards uh, trend. The Kospi is up and the ASX is trending down, but essentially holding flat. Uh, we're closing out a week tomorrow. We're going to have James Ross with Andrew Ferris and James Whalen. Uh, also, The View from Australia with Chris Western of Pepperstone. Next up, back chat with Janice Wong and Danny, Ging, uh, Danny Giddings talking about government efforts to recruit doctors from abroad and about why birds are smacking into our skyscrapers. And thanks to you, the loyal Legion of fans, for Money Talk. <laughs>